Welcome back to episode 93 of That So Second Millennium. In this episode, Bill and I have a conversation about the separation between science and philosophy that's grown up over the past four centuries. Talk a little bit about the history of the relationship between science and philosophy going all the way back to the ancient world and how it changed possibly with William of Ockham, definitely with Descartes, and the current situation where philosophers and scientists go about seemingly pretty ignorant of each other's enterprises. Some of this is the inevitable amount of specialization that comes with the ever-increasing amount of knowledge available to people in the modern world with all of our information technology from printing on through the internet. But some of it is that scientists and philosophers have really just grown completely estranged and just do not entangle themselves with the other's world. And I discuss some of the problems I, I, as a scientist, think that that probably creates for us. And opportunities that I think we could take advantage of and we could get past that. And especially, note at the end, um, that Catholic universities would have a special role to play in that, as they are, after all, the inheritors of the great synthesis of the Middle Ages, before all of this uh, great divorce, as Bill calls it, uh, started to happen. So I hope you enjoyed the conversation, and if you have any of the books uh, that I suggested that I would like to find but can't, uh, by all means, uh, drop me a line. Let me know some titles and authors. Thanks. Hello, friends of our podcast, That's No Second Millennium. This is Bill Schmidt, one of the co-hosts, and let me first and foremost welcome my uh, fellow co-host, Dr. Paul Geesting. How are you doing, Paul? Good to be back in conversation with you. Yes. Yeah, it's good to talk to you, Bill. Um, it's, a, it's frankly, you know, it's mid-January in the Midwest, and uh, it's, it's good to have an excuse to be inside doing something as opposed to uh, <laughs> being outside. Uh, yes. Tend, the, uh, t- tending to household <laughs> chores or something. That's right. Is there snow on the ground uh, down in southern Indiana? Oh, there's just a wisp of snow. It was. It was all. It, I don't think it made it to 20 yesterday. Um, it is. It is climbing toward freezing. It may not get here. May it get there here today? Uh, so. And it's, yeah. of course, up in and, South and Bend, I'm sure it's. Uh, it's. It's pretty white. Actually, yeah, not. Uh, not by any means as much snowfall as uh, typical in, in in many past years. But uh, we outdid you on temperature. I think we were at the seven or eight uh, degrees real temperature and three mm. degrees wind chill uh, this morning. Okay. So we always yeah. have, we always have something to you know keep us awake and alert and angst ridden and all right. of those wonderful. Things. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if it doesn't snow in January, it'll snow in March. As That's right. Exactly. Cool down and uh, really gets to the point where it starts dumping that lake effect snow. Right. That's right. That's the, that's the angst, the uh, lake effect. So, uh, but I know we had a a really enjoyable visit to uh, Purdue and a great conversation with Dr. Thomas Riba. I'm wondering um, what's been on your agenda in recent days. Well, actually, you know, the ideas that I sent to you revolved around something that's been on my mind for as long as the podcast and longer um, is the is the whole question of the relationship between science and philosophy in the modern era and you know the modern era going all the way back to the early modern era if you will the you know the late reformation the 16th 17th century when science as we now know it was really starting to come into existence right 
and uh yeah it's been it's been a story it's it's been a uh an ugly saga and uh it started started with an area where there was you know very little there was there's very little of a um you know it's almost like there's sort of a barbed wire fence and a no man's land in between the two disciplines really and, mm. and philosophy has suffered a great deal and we don't necessarily recognize it in science but i think science has suffered a great deal from it as well so that was what i was hoping to talk about today um i'm sort of in the middle of some reading uh wish i was further through it but uh, life is like that sometimes right. um dealing with that subject and then and of course <laughs> unfortunately talking a little bit about how dissatisfied i am with the reading you know if any any point uh, dear listener during this podcast if you if you say well he should just read this book hey Look us up at thatsosecondmillennium.net, right. oh, yeah. and uh, there's a link. There are links on the right to email both of us. So go ahead and email Paul. Um, yeah, this book that he ought to read. That's definitely welcome. So yeah, very good. Yeah, we're not exactly the uh, breadth of um, reading material that you might find in the Oprah uh, Reading Club. Uh, there's there's only a certain genre that uh, you know, we there, pursue. There would so be some overlap, but yeah, there's not. Uh, there's it's not going to be the same. Uh, cluster of books that's for sure yeah, exactly yeah but now uh, i agree with you uh, uh with that interest in the intersection of philosophy and science and in fact um i think of the uh the annual meetings of the society of catholic scientists as one of the few places where someone like me who's not 100 percent constantly involved in either of those worlds uh really ever sees the intersection appearing am i right that uh, obviously the um, early on uh well philosophy was everywhere and science was everywhere and the intersection must have been pretty broad oh yeah i mean there's you, you think about and i'm actually um in my daily sort of uh in my daily spiritual reading i'm i'm plowing through uh the book of wisdom right now and so uh -huh. I've just read, I'm in the middle of the book. I think I just finished chapter nine. Uh, and so, and so Solomon, you know, the, uh, at least presented as the author of that book, um, mm -hmm. has just gone on this long encomium on, if you have wisdom, you have everything. And, you know, you, you understand the nature of birds and beasts and why the, uh, celestial phenomena do what they do. Um, it's it's all one big integrated whole. You also understand how to live your life and and all those other things. So, right. and that was, and of course, my understanding is that the Book of Wisdom is commonly thought to have been actually written in the first or second century BC. So, in the Hellenistic world, uh, after Alexander the Great, when the whole Eastern Mediterranean, including the Jews, Judea, and you know the Jews living in places like Alexandria or even as far away as uh, as Persia still in in that ambit still in that uh that world where ideas were traveling back and forth and that yeah that would that would be you know greek philosophy especially from socrates on yeah it's all of that stuff yeah all of that you know it, it, you can you can ask questions about all of it and you can explore all of it and you're going to use you know you're going to use the same sort of reasoning powers to to discuss it right and one's general love of knowledge and one's obvious curiosity to understand the world better um, 
placed people solidly and immediately and comfortably in the intersection of not only philosophy and science, but theology as mm-hmm. well, I presume. Yeah. Uh, yeah, as, as proven by, uh, by the, the, the Book of Wisdom. Um, but that, so uh, I, now when you speak about uh, what, I, what I'll call the great divorce that seems to have been happening, uh, when did that start happening? Uh, well, I mean, you look at history and you can, you can point to a lot of things. You can go at least as early as, say, William of Ockham and uh, the sort of whatever you want to call it, occasionalism or voluntarism, uh, where you know, to, to some degree, God is just sort of willing to do things. And of course, people frequently point to, to Descartes as, you know, the initiator of, of a new movement philosophy that led to radical skepticism, right. you know, through, the, through people like Kant and Hume, um, and to the point where you have idealism in philosophy, where we're not really sure because of, because of Descartes' method. Um, we're not really sure if there's anything outside our own mind which is, and of course, that's the odd thing about that is that that's all going on in the same era when science, as we know it, is coming into being and starting to, you know, gain momentum. And of course, science demands, I mean, practically demands psychologically, if not, if not an absolute hard demand logically, that you believe that there's something outside your own mind for you to right. study. You, know, right. you go study it, you go consult it, you go look at it, you go run experiments it's on it. You don't know what the answer yeah. is. Right. Um, so you're either, you know, you're doing one of two things, logically speaking. You're either plumbing your own unconscious, I guess, you know, the part of your mind that you don't have any control over, or else you're consulting an external reality that has, you know, its own truths and you, you don't know them to start with. And that's why the scientific enterprise even exists as we know it, which is yeah. to go and consult nature, to come up with some ideas, to go check nature and see if our ideas work out. And if they don't, then to adjust our ideas. Right. And that's, so, yeah, hmm. and, that's, and that's going on at the same time as philosophy is turning inward and spiraling, you know, <laughs> inward, if not downward. Uh. And to the point where, I mean, you know, growing up in the 20th century, you grew up in the 20th century. I mean, mm-hmm. philosophers, what do you think of philosophers and the philosophic discipline, you know, by and large? Is it something that, is it is it the acme of human accomplishment? Or is it a bunch of crabbed university professors bickering with each other about things that can't possibly be true or relevant to anything outside their own bickering? Oh my goodness! I'd have no use for the latter, but I uh, I remember when uh, our daughter was going to uh, college. Um, one of my uh, foc- focus points uh, in um, uh, you know at least offering advice on uh, colleges and uh, core courses and things, uh, I really wanted her to take a, a couple of good solid classical philosophy courses. Because I really, I love that idea of being taught how to think and how to analyze and not to think about, uh, you know, just your own uh, little mind that doesn't uh, connect to anything. I, that's that's a obviously new and scary concept. I'm thinking of the uh, 
of the Plato and uh, mm -hmm. uh, Socrates and, and Aristotle and, and, and everything that followed uh, on a good trajectory from them. Uh, and, and what you're saying is that uh, really uh, philosophy has lost that trajectory. It's veered, it's veered away just uh, almost uh, hopelessly, huh? Yeah, I mean, so the, you know, the 20th century philosopher and historian of philosophy, Etienne Gilson, um, fairly famous in Catholic circles, quite famous in Catholic circles. Um, you know, I, I forget exactly the title of his book. He, he has a book called Methodical Realism, mm -hmm. you know, a good book in itself. Um, it's, it's very short. It's just an introduction to the subject, but it's, it's certainly uh, a book that gripped me with its uh, importance. And of course, he, he writes about the history of philosophy. And and I would have to look up the titles because uh, I didn't I didn't think I was going to mention that, but it, it sprang into my mind as you were saying that uh -huh. um, that you know essentially essentially the history of philosophy, the history of Western philosophy from Descartes on to the present, the mid twentieth century when Gilson was writing. Um, this is you know this is this is me adding an interpretation to what he said, but essentially it's a big experiment in itself. Um, uh. We've tried it. We've, we've tried basing a philosophy on the cogito ergo sum, that that's right. okay. That's my starting point. That's my only starting point. That's really kind of my only axiom. Maybe I'll take a few more logical principles beyond that, but I have to try to construct in a sense. You know, I have to justify my belief in external reality just starting with that. Mm. And so that brings to mind the situation. So my you know, my training in logic and reasoning to the degree you call you can call it training was really, it's, it's, it's all self-taught really. And it's all, it comes from the direction of mathematics, geometry huh. and so forth. Right. Um, so, so the, so the example that springs to my mind is, is non-Euclidean geometry, which is one of the things that because I was reading about it when I was 12 years old, I assume everyone has, and I don't know that that's really true. Uh, yeah, I could, I could testify that it's not, I'm afraid. <laughs> okay. So, okay. So hey, this allows me also to work in an anecdote about Bertrand Russell that may not be um, as generally known as some anecdotes about Bertrand Russell. Um, okay. You're familiar with Bertrand Russell, or at least the yes. concept of the man very famous mathematician and atheist philosopher, one of the old atheists, as Pat Flynn calls him. Uh -huh. um, I mean, not, not just Pat Flynn, but, you know, the crop of atheists in the late 19th and early 20th century. Uh, in any case, so I read a book, one of the earliest books that I read um, that was, you know, sort of this exploring mathematics. It's like called Great Theorems in Mathematical History or something like that. And it starts with a, the prologue or the preface um, gives an, uh, or, or one of the early, very early chapters, the first chapter perhaps, talks about Greek geometry, and, but it gives this anecdote about Bertrand Russell and his brother starting to teach him Euclid's Elements, right? It's sort of the most successful textbook of all time because it was written in three, 300 some BC, then was still being used as a textbook in the 20th century. For all I know, it's still being used as a textbook somewhere. For geometry, because it is it is that good. Um, yeah. It's not without flaws, but it is that good. And so, but it starts off with it's geometry. So you need a bunch of things you can assume from the start, yeah. and then you can go on. So it's you know he starts with a bunch of definitions, and then you know a modern mathematician would say, well, that was a nice you know attempt for pre-modern, but you know you just kind of have to take point, line, and plane as just things that you can't even define, but you take them as given. 
but but Euclid tries to give definitions of them, like a point is that which has no part, um, and a line is a series, you know, uh, I forget the definition of line, a straight line is a, is a line with the points on the line lying evenly with themselves. You can sort of well, see I, what he's trying to get at. Yeah, and I love that case. kind of exercise of uh, yeah. trying to define your terms. It's yeah. a good exercise uh, uh, for all sorts of reasons. So yeah. book one starts with uh, 20-odd definitions of memory serves, five postulates, and then five common notions, which we would just call them all axioms, perhaps, in the uh, in, in modern logical nomenclature. So he starts off with at least 23 definitions and 10 axioms, or maybe 33 axioms, whatever you want to call it. So mm -hmm. the postulates are, th let's see, the common notions are things like, if you add equal things to equal things, the sums are equal. You know, sort of common sense stuff, hence the name common notions. I see. The postulates are more about mathematical objects. And they are also pretty straightforward like you can you can take a line and extend this you can extend any straight line as far as you want to mm -hmm. until you get to the fifth postulate and the fifth postulate says if two straight lines are crossed by a third straight line and they make the angles on one side less than two right angles then the first two lines meet on the side on which the angles are less than two right angles Mm -hmm. It's a lot longer and more involved, and people hated it from the word go. They looked at it like, what are you doing? Because, you, you know, Euclid was one of the early people to actually try to lay out some kind of systematic um, view of geometry in general. And so this fifth postulate irked people, and it's logically entailed in a lot of basic things you'd like to have in geometry. He ends up using it, it's, it's in the foundation of what you need, to, for example, to prove that all triangles have angles that sum to 180 degrees. Ah, well, that's pretty important. Yeah. yeah. So, so people have been trying to prove the fifth postulate. People tried to prove the fifth, po fifth postulate from the other postulates, the common notions, and so forth, from Euclid's time all the way into the 19th century. And what turned out around the beginning of the 19th century, what turned out to be the case is that people got, well, they got so good in, at uh, manipulating uh, the logic and there was so much work that had been done for other people to build off of that people like Gauss and some of his contemporaries finally worked out that in fact the fifth postulate doesn't have to be the case huh you could have so so what the fifth postulate is telling you essentially is is how to find out if two lines are parallel or not Right. Okay. If you have two lines that are parallel, they'll never meet each other. Right. That's our common idea of Euclidean geometry. That's right. There's, there's such a thing, and that carries a lot of other implications. They're always the same distance from each other, and then right. that whole business about if you cross them with a third line, the two angles will add up to 180 degrees on either side of that line, which is right. which is sort of a logical, you know, turnabout of the of the fifth postulate as it's actually laid out in Euclid which is sort of the way I described it. I, I won't vouch for its exact uh, precision. But, but as it turns out, you can build a completely consistent geometry where that, none of that is true. And in fact, you can build at least two different geometries where none of that is true. Oh my goodness. And they seem to describe spaces that, broadly speaking, are like if they were wrapped around a sphere or if they were wrapped around sort of an infinite saddle shape then you would find that the lines that stay within those sort of surfaces, I mean, this is kind of crude, but it's, it's, it, it is the most, 
it's probably the easiest way to visualize these alternative right. geometries. So in the, the spherical one, for example, if you have two parallel lines, they're going to cross each other somewhere around that sphere. Huh. And the angles in a triangle that are drawn on the surface of a sphere, those arcs are going to cross each other, and the angles are actually going to add up to more than 180 degrees. My goodness. And it's all consistent. You need the fifth postulate to specify which geometry you're in. Ah. So this is where, okay, so that was a long parenthesis, and I'm sure you're wondering where the heck I was going with this. But the point <laughs> is this. We need a second, at least a second postulate, besides cogito ergo sum, to do philosophy. I think this is what I take from Gilson. Okay. We need a realist postulate. There's something outside my own mind. Period. There is. I take that as granted, and I go on from there. Right. And my sense, my sense uh, inputs tell me something about that external world, you know. And then we, and then we have to qualify that. Then uh, you know, we can use both philosophical and scientific methods to, you know, think about that and qualify that and be precise with that. But they tell us something. Right. We are interacting with a, a world that's not just us. That's not just the right. contents of our own mind. Right. Um. But that's, but that's where, you know, philosophy has gotten lost. I mean, certainly in the mid-20th century, it was mostly lost out in those weeds. And people were starting to try to do other things. Yeah. But that's, and so the, and so the problem is, is that scientists and philosophers, you know, of course, the other problem of, is just that since the advent of publishing, printing, um, the amount of information that's available in the world has just continued to rack to mount up and up and up and up and up. And so you can no longer you can no longer master all of mathematics. You can no longer master all of philosophy. Mm. You can no longer master all of quote natural philosophy or modern science. You can't even master all of physics. You have to specialize. And so of course that's a, yes. that's an inherent problem. So scientists and philosophers yeah. are not only ignorant of each other's disciplines, you know, in those in those huge bins, of course they're sort of ignorant of you know, we're all ignorant of the details of other people's specialties. And what we're going to do about that ultimately is an interesting question. Yes. Yeah, we're, we're drawing too deeply into the uh, separate silos where no conversation is possible. Yeah, it gets to the point where there's almost very little, you know, the, 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 soup, the conversations we can have with people outside our own silo are, are by, by sheer force of necessity pretty superficial. Yeah, yeah. Gee, that and uh, and that's scary. And it also seems to run counter to the whole originating principle of the university, that there was some kind of unit of force between, uh, you know, among the different disciplines of knowledge. Yeah, yeah, and that's yeah. and that's. Uh, gosh, I was just finishing listening to Bishop Barron's series on uh, uh, John Henry Newman, who of course talks about the concept, the idea of the university. Um, and that's, that's yes. interesting in that context too. Um, yeah. and it is the, the, the push toward specialization is, is a, a very thorny problem, but there is still, there's still more of a gap than there needs to be. And there are clear benefits that, you know, to me, there are very clear benefits having, having been a practicing geoscientist and right. read a whole bunch of geoscience papers and a fair number of proposals. And, you know, evaluating the work of other scientists and even looking at the way I myself do work, I could have benefited from more of a training and 
logic, whether it needed to be formal symbolic logic or not, but that's not done anymore. I mean, we have mathematics classes and they wander through a lot of proofs, but right. a lot of people can get, I mean, people can get a PhD in geoscience, I can testify, without having really understood a whole lot of the mathematics. Yeah, they, can, huh? they can crank it out and, you know, do what's considered necessary. They don't know. They don't necessarily know why. Yeah. And that's not necessarily that different from the way it was in the past, but it's, you know, if it's, if it's a, if it's always been a problem, then it's still a problem. Yeah. And if they were having trouble discerning a purpose behind what they were doing, that was when they would turn to, you know, if they were a scientist, they would turn to a book of philosophy or if they were a philosopher, they would turn to a book of science or simply just be part of the broader intellectual communities that were right. hopefully yeah. forming and, and really dynamic. Yeah. And I think there's a vast area that has barely been scratching. So that's why I'm intrigued. You know, it's like I was talking before we started the recording here. So I've picked up the Condix book. So we, we just, we talked to Marine Condic last ah, summer, the Society yes. of Catholic Scientists Conference. And so I did indeed order and begin reading. Um, oh, there's another book that I want to finish before I push any further into their book on, uh -huh. uh, on basic metaphysics. Um, okay. But the, so that's, so that's what's being laid out. And that, that was what was the intriguing promise to me that uh, she essentially made during that interview is that in that book, they go and they deal with the specific, you know, they, they get into the, into the quote weeds Right. Um, which is sort of a business person expression, I think. Um, <laughs> oh my gosh, the actual detail. Oh, God forbid we deal with the actual details of right. how this works. But right. but that's that I, I I don't think that gets done. Maybe it gets done, and again, this is where, you know, dear reader or dear listener, if you, if you know where this is being done, uh drop us a line. Drop drop me in particular yeah. a line. Yeah. But I don't think there's anywhere near enough work done. And it seems very pedestrian and plebeian, and I can see why from a, you know, wanting to be cool and happening and, uh, you know, get tenure and all that sort of thing and get published and get cited a bunch. People don't necessarily do it. But I think there's an enormous amount to be done in terms of taking even the everyday things, even the sort of pre- modern physics weirdness of, of entities, like, like even just like a tectonic plate. What uh -huh. is a tectonic plate? What is it really? What is what is its matter? What is its form? How are we going to map those terms directly onto that? And if that's an easy enough problem that we can come to a solution that we agree on, let's push on. What's a mineral? How could we or how should we define what a mineral is? Well, uh, yeah. You know, it's it's a it's a genus of things, you know, so this specific mass of stuff is the mineral quartz. Okay, it's alpha quartz. Yes, I know it has this structure. What's the matter? What's the form? What 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 is its actuality? What is its potential? If we want to take the Aristotelian Thomistic, um, which you know I'm certainly not aware of a better real realist metaphysics out there at this point. Um, yeah. And 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 I'm just you know knowing what I know about the progress of science, I just can't picture that process not leading to a large number of important refinements to our philosophic concepts. I mean, by the time really? you've done that with ordinary objects, then right. we can start dealing with the objects of quantum physics and relativity. Right. Then let's see where we're at. 
And I just, I just can't imagine that process not turning up, but, it, but you have to do the work. I mean, you would have to slog through a lot of slow arguments about specific things. And, and unfortunately we live in a world where scientists have for centuries now, kind of, eh, you know, philosophy, blah, it's not that interesting. I mean, even I, I there's like a quote from Richard Feynman, Feynman of all people. One of, I mean, one of the most brilliant people of the 20th century. Um, yeah. But he's supposedly quoted as saying something like, you know, scientists need a philosophy of science the way birds need to know ornithology. Ah. You know, s- sneering at the concept, which is like, that's one of the dumbest things ever said. Yeah, like, really. how can a bird not benefit from knowing ornithology? Yes. <laughs> Seriously? You could say that? Huh, um, why would you, how could you not benefit? And I, and I consider myself very fortunate in that I actually had and I don't think many people get this at all, but I had in my undergrad program at Washington University in St. Louis, all like five of us that graduated in that um, major in the year that I graduated. But we had a capstone class that delved into philosophy of science, history and sociology of science. Right. Um, Read some some Popper, read some Mm -hmm. Thomas Kuhn and the... uh, structure of scientific revolutions looked at some papers and you know the foundations of our field and looked at the structure of the the plate tectonics paradigm shift that happened within people's working lifetime certainly at the time when i was in school um people you know people who were working in the 60s were still working at university jobs in you know large numbers in the 1990s so this Mm -hmm. had all happened within you know institutional living memory that's scary and it's it's a fascinating story Mm. It was just this this idea, this master idea that sent its, you know, sent its roots out all the way through and just reoriented everything. All sorts of things that seemed, you know, to be disparate or that we had really terrible, <laughs> we had ter- really terrible placeholder ideas for how mountains were built as, as, a, as a sort of outstanding example. The right. geosyncline idea. It was it was garbage. It was it was such garbage. Um, wow. And we still use some of the terms that d- descend from that time, but now they live in the plate tectonics paradigm, where there's a purpose for all of it. I mean, we could we could describe. Okay, well, mountains get raised, and there are these basins on either side, and stuff erodes off the mountains into these basins, and we could call it this and this and this and this, and that's all fine. But there was no no. Uh, causal principle that could be found that could make anything like sense of why there were mountains in the first place doing all these things. And that's the sort, and, and you, and you had to, we had to make observations. We had to, and we had to, we had to pile up enough weird things and especially weird things about the seafloor ended up being what cracked the, uh, what cracked the puzzle for geology. Once we started measuring mm-hmm. magnetic stripes in the seafloor, and wondered what in the heck is the earth telling us now? <laughs> wow. All of a sudden things started crystallizing, so to speak. Uh-huh. That to so use speak. another geologic <laughs> metaphor. <laughs> right. Um Yeah, and I just I just can't imagine that, that a process like that not happening several times if we really, really did the work of basic metaphysics of modern science, you know, got the ideas out there, hammered on them. Because I don't think, I mean, the, the stuff that I do read, and of course the stuff that I have read suffers from being fairly elementary, um, but even at that elementary level, I think they could do a better job of describing the reality that I've come to know. A lot better job, frankly. Um, and once, you know, one, one final note, if this is out there, you know, in whatever field of physics, um, of bi- biology, certainly geology, uh, 
let me know. <laughs> give me some yeah. titles. Give, give me some authors. Give me some titles. But I don't think it's out there. I don't think anywhere near enough of it is out there. And that's what I hope to read, get out of the rest of the Condex book, is, is at least tangling with that. And of course, the Condex book has the motivation of we're dealing with human life and, you know, well, that's basic, right. yes. basic places where human life is being destroyed um, and philosophic or sham philosophic arguments are being advanced to justify it. Yes. Okay. With that yeah, motivation, we can maybe are finally moving in sync. Yeah. Yeah. We can maybe finally, yeah. eventually, get to the point where we do the philosophy. But yeah, if we don't have that overwhelming motivation, apparently it won't get done, and that's a tragedy. And the ultimate tragedy is, what would you say? Uh, ultimately, um, that whole uh, ethos of genuine curiosity and using knowledge to generate more and better questions uh, uh, without without an awareness of uh, philosophy, without an embrace of philosophy as a love of knowledge, uh, uh, science uh, loses that driving force of creativity. Is I mean, the biggest maybe, maybe, biggest we can go, maybe we could go all the way back to, you know, to scripture again and say, we've lost the sense of wisdom and wisdom perhaps ah. in the sense of seeing things from the furthest possible distance that we can reach with our own human perspective. Yes. Yeah. And to, well, ultimately to things integrated to the highest degree that again, we can with our limited human perspective. Curiosity and wisdom are kissing cousins. Uh, whereas I think the general assumption in, in today's popular culture is that if you have wisdom, you don't really need curiosity. You know all you need to know. Or if we even use the term wisdom at all, and we don't just substitute knowledge Gosh, as you having know, we, a, yeah, we a barely dumpster do full of facts. <laughs> That's right. Uh, yeah, internet is not seen as a uh, conveyor of wisdom. Uh, no. That that uh, uh, somebody better be a conveyor of wisdom, and ultimately, no. it's up to the each individual. Uh, to uh, to take the internet that far, but yeah, well, it's it's fascinating. And so what you're what you're doing is really laying a groundwork for um, kind of a, a renewed challenge, which kind of harks back to some of the earlier episodes of of our podcast, doesn't it? Uh, you know, yeah, let, yeah. This is yeah, definitely a harking back to some of our early deeply. episodes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like it. I like it. Well, uh, um, and as you read more, especially into the conduct book, I'll be very interested yeah. in in talking with you about that. Yeah, and yeah, and as a parting shot, just to think that you know, if 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 anyone, if any institutions in the world were to try to tackle this problem head on, you would think it would be Catholic institutions. Amen. And maybe, and maybe Amen. that is happening somewhere, but hopefully, we can I talk hope. about that in the future. Very good. Yes, very good. That's another purpose of our podcast. Yes. If you enjoyed this episode, or it made you think, please subscribe to That So Second Millennium via Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Podbean, or your podcast service of choice. Our intro music is Mars, the bringer of war, and our outro music is Venus, the bringer of peace. From the Planet Suite by Gustav Holst, performed by the U.S. Air Force Heritage of America Band. The recording is in the public domain, and made available by MuseOpen.org. For my co-host Bill Schmidt, I'm Paul Geesting. Thanks for listening to another episode of That So Second Millennium.